Hi and welcome to the Crime Pods. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week we actually have another requested case from one of our first ever listeners, Lindsay, has asked us to do this case, which I actually didn't know much about and I think it's due to the age of it. So we're going to throw back all the way to the 1950s to one of Scotland's first ever serial killers who, to show how old it is, he was actually killed by the death penalty here in Scotland. So this is the case of Peter Manuel. just about his early life and everything like that up until his first murder not to you know spoil what's going to happen but you know it's yeah, a great podcast we know that he is <laughs> and a you murderer, did say Sam, at the come start on. he was the first serial killer <laughs> so if you didn't know that apologies anyway here we go peter manuel was born on the 15th of march 1927 but he was actually born in new york so his mum, Bridget Greenan, and his dad, Samuel Manuel, which just sounds so it's a good, you know, that's like one a, of the tongue. That's a good, like, yeah, you should be a radio presenter. Yeah, and today it's Samuel Manuel. Anyway, <laughs> they were both Scottish and they came from large Catholic families and they got married in 1923. So do the math, about four years before Peter was born. When they got married, though, they were already pregnant with their first son. James and he was born in 1924 this is when they were they were still in Scotland so in about 1926 they decided that they were going to search for a better life and they moved to New York in America because that's kind of around about the time when a lot of people in the UK moved over to America and because they just believed you know it's there's a bigger and better world out there so fair they both went over, but they left their son James with Bridget's mum in Scotland. So they didn't oh. bring James with them. I couldn't find out why. Maybe they didn't have mm. enough money. They were going over, starting a new life, and maybe they were going to bring him over, you know, and yeah, a few years later. Yeah, it could be like they were going for a better life. It could be because they were going to like make money to then provide a better life for him. Yeah, absolutely. But after about a year of being in New York, they had their second child. So this is Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel. Mm. Oh. Sorry, I was just going to... No, I'm just buttoning. I actually don't know much about his early life, but I was just going to say that's a very Catholic name. It is so Catholic. If you want to put in any more disciples yeah. in there, be and my Mark. guest. Yep, and maybe a Michael. I don't know. So the three of them lived in New York until Peter was five years old. So due to the stock market crash in 1929, this caused the US to be plunged into the Great Depression. So obviously, life wasn't great over there. They hadn't found the bigger and better life that they were looking for. However, they did try and persevere with it, but they were just completely struggling. They couldn't make ends meet. So they moved back to Scotland in 1932. They managed the Great Depression for about three years. So, you know, good on them. Yeah, Anyway, they moved back to Scotland, but Peter moved back thinking he was an only child. So he arrived no way. in Scotland. He did. As, like, it did. How do you forget? not mention, like, did they never mention him? It's like they didn't. And either maybe Peter forgot because he was five, but to be honest, it's like they kind of just left or him. Or even it hide. could be that, yeah, it could be the whole behaviour thing. Like, when he's been treated like an honest child for so long, he might have knew, but he might have just 
kept like he didn't realize what being a sibling would entail do you know what i mean yeah like he's had his parents over there yeah revolving Mm -hmm. around him and then he's coming back and now he's got half the attention Mm -hmm. exactly so so he arrives back in scotland he's got an older brother james but not only did he have to deal with that he had to deal with a completely different culture a new school new family members like not just james you know you've got your gran and everyone like that because they came from a big catholic family like i said at the start so understandably peter did struggle adjusting to his new life in 1937 Peter's younger sister, Teresa, was born. Once Teresa was born, the family decided to move down to Coventry in England, as that had become one of the main major hubs for the British motor industry okay. in the early 20th century. So there was like a lot more jobs available for, obviously, his dad, mm-hmm. which was great. So they moved down there. When they were down there, though, Peter and James, their behaviour just got worse and worse as they got older. So James was always getting in trouble with the police and he was sent away to an approved school, Okay. which left obviously Peter and Teresa behind. I don't really have much information on his younger sister. I'm guessing she was just well behaved. <laughs> she just kind of dealt trouble. with it. Yep, she was the youngest, so I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it. You're Sexist, just saying that because you're the youngest sibling. Yeah, I'm just perfect in every way. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. Anyway... Peter, he was very intelligent and he even managed to obtain a scholarship for a local grammar school. It was a really respected grammar school in in the area that he lived. But that didn't stop him from causing trouble. At the age of 11, he went to a church next door to the school that he was in Mm -hmm. and he stole the money out of the collection box, which is just, you know, the start. He's 11 years old and he's already stealing money. But then at the age of 12, he was bound over for 12 months for breaking into a shop. So that means that the court had the power to hold him to the conditions of bail for committing his crime. So I had, not going to lie, I did have to Google what bound over Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know what that means, yeah. Yeah, so it just means, obviously, you're 12, you're on bail, but, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah. they can keep you on hold. Okay. Anyway, you think, oh, that would scare a 12-year-old, but no, it didn't. Because only after a month of having these conditions enforced upon him, he was taken to court again for breaking and entering. So, like his brother, he was sentenced to serve time at an approved school. Right, okay. So he's kind of following in his brother's footsteps at this time. Like, like I understand why the brother would be in approved school because his parents fucked off to New York and came back five years later with a fucking other sibling. But, like, I, I don't, yeah. Like, I was just saying, like, it made more sense if he was, like, the first child like, that, that was abandoned. Then I'd be like, yeah, fair play. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, anyway, we have to remember, he is only 12 years old. But when he was attending the approved school, he had a full physical and mental medical check and they both came back and it was shown that he was in good health. Okay. So there was no signs of, you know, psychopathic behaviour or anything like that. And he, he was, it wasn't like he had a really bad childhood. He wasn't, you know, starved and everything. He was well-kept kids. He, he was just a nightmare. Yeah. We've said that um, before, though. It's funny when... There isn't any huge signs, do you know? No, exactly. But what I will say, though, is it was noted that he was a constant liar and he was like the boss mm. when it comes to causing trouble. He would he would cause the trouble and kind of be, you know, he'd be in charge of it all, but then he would blame okay. others for 
anything that had caused. So he didn't take the blame for it. And remember this just now, he didn't take the blame when he was younger for any of the trouble caused. Right, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it turns out he ended up being housed in around four other approved schools because he just kept trying to escape. But then he kept just being caught again because, you know, he's 12 years old. Yeah. In November 1940, Coventry ended up suffering severe bomb damage due to the Blitz. Because we have oh, to remember yeah. it's World War Two. I you keep know, forgetting usually... that's like happening. Yeah, exactly. Like we're telling the story of, you know, a serial killer. But we also have to remember world events. It's World War Two. World War Two. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Which will obviously be a huge effect. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And his family home was destroyed because of the Blitz. Oh, geez, was it? It was. Because of this, they mm-hmm. moved back up to Scotland to Motherwell. However, they left Peter at one of the approved schools he was in in Yorkshire. So it's mm-hmm. like it was, you know, his time to get left behind. James has yep. had his shot. Now it's Peter's. Yeah, time. one child um, at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, whilst at the school in Yorkshire, he keeps continuing to run away. He commits even more crimes. So it's like the approved wow. school isn't. What are they doing at this approved school? Yeah, they're helping him. <laughs> Right. In 1941, at the age of 14, he breaks into a house close to the school and he was caught by the police because he had stolen just a handbag. He had stole just a handbag from this house. However, the woman... You think the woman... breaking in, at least take something else. Yeah, take everything of value. Come on now. But I must say, the woman who was living at the house in the t- uh, that he broke into was absolutely, like, she was shook and terrified because he saw him coming out of her bedroom with an axe in his hand. Jesus. But she wasn't harmed. Wow. You could think maybe he just took it in there for, to just, you know, scare someone in in case. But who knows? Maybe he went in there to maybe try something out. I don't know. Anyway, by the time Peter was 15, he had been charged with, three more cases of breaking and entering and he was also charged with malicious bodily harm because during one of the break-ins he had repeatedly struck a woman who was lying asleep in her bed which left her with severe concussion and also caused her to have a hemorrhage so this is just a woman who was sleeping and he was stealing from her but you know he just thought I'm gonna you know batter you yeah which is you know He is only 15 years old, remember? Yeah, yeah. He was then charged for the indecent assault of one of the wives from one of the school staff. So maybe it was like his teacher's wife, you know? He had hit her over the head with a large stick, dragged her into the woods, and then he attempted to sexually assault her. But obviously he didn't manage that, thankfully. Yeah, good. But he is only 15 years old. So after this... So, you know, he's caused many break-ins and, you know, after this indecent assault, he was then sent to Rochester Borstal Institution, which is a reform school for young offenders. Now, if we go back, was it not Angus Sinclair who was sent to a Borstal when he was younger? I think so. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe he's following in each other's footsteps yeah who even knows i know they were around at different times but you know it seems mm-hmm. kind of the same at the age of 16 peter pleaded guilty to robbery with the force of violence and then he was committed to stay at this borstal for two years 
So it's kind of like a juvie, I would say, nowadays. Probably mm-hmm. harder because, you know, back in the day there was no health and safety or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is this will tell you how there's no health and safety. Um, oh, God. Whilst there, so this, let's just say it was about 1944, Mm-hmm. Peter was struck on the head with a heavy piece of steel from an air raid attack. So, you know, remember, right. yeah, there's yeah. still a world war going on. Yeah, yeah. And he was knocked unconscious for a few hours and continued to feel very dazed Jeez. for several days afterwards. So, you know, he had, like, really bad concussion. And it's kind of like how I felt when your granddad dropped a solid wooden table leg on my head. <laughs> Not to be that guy. Oh my goodness, I remember that. <laughs> yep, and I everyone was felt. like, yes, yeah, Sam, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, let's go have a Chinese. <laughs> and you were okay. I was, it was great. So maybe back in the day, all Peter needed was a Chinese. Anyway. If only that, that happened. I know. In that same year, though, he received a large electric shock. So this was another accident in this place but this unfortunately also claimed the lives of three other people so he suffered again from a loss of consciousness and he was also badly burned so his head you know clearly that's one of the things that helps a serial killer you know you always see they've either fallen off a swing or they've run into a wall Mm. or something so he his head has clearly been damaged but also I kind of think, like, so this took the lives of three people. What would have happened if it took his life? Yeah, yeah. You know? So think about that once you know the full story of what this guy is. So in 1945, at the age of 18, so this mm-hmm. is when World War Two was ending, Peter was finally released from the Borstal, and so he moved to Blackpool. And he worked on one of the fairground stalls, which sounds great fun. However, it wasn't for him, so he didn't stay there long and he then moved back up to Scotland to be with his family. I don't know if, if he had a good relationship with them. I think he did. There's, I can't find any information on that they didn't get on or anything like that, you know. So it wasn't like they were on bad terms. Right. Anyway, just after a year of being in Scotland, he got arrested again for breaking and Jeez. entering. So it's like a pattern. He likes to break into houses. Yeah. And he, he was caught stealing a watch but he was released on bail on the 21st of February 1946 so he was on bail and this is when his crimes really started to get out of hand okay he's just been breaking in and entering and you know stealing things but it's not been too bad apart from obviously the harm on that the teacher's wife yeah but on the 3rd of March 1946 he just randomly attacked a young mum on a footpath in Mount Vernon, which is in Glasgow. He just brutally beat her up, kicked her, and then ran away. You know, he just... Oh. It wasn't... He didn't kill her. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd say, oh, he should have killed her. He shouldn't have done that. But, you know, the way he just did it, it was just completely out of the blue. Just four days later, he then did the exact same thing. He brutally attacked oh. and beat up another woman... Um, she was a nurse, and it was just a few miles away from the first attack. But thankfully, a uh, passing motorbike, uh, the guy on the motorbike, helped stop the attack. But Peter managed to run away, so it's not like he, he got caught. And just the next again day, yeah, he attacked a 26-year-old woman. He is after busy. He is. He's, you know, no wonder he's not able to get a job. He's just, you know, he's got his hands full. Mm. 
he attacked a woman, though she had just gotten off the bus in Bothwell in Glasgow, and he attacked her from behind, and he just kept banging her head off the ground. And then he forced her to a quiet railway embankment where he sexually assaulted her and then ran away. So it's getting worse, you know? Yeah. Thankfully, well, I say thankfully, but the victim was able to give a description of Peter. And within the next day, he was arrested and charged. So this sounds good, but hold your breath. He was then identified by the other two victims, but he wasn't charged for these offences. There just wasn't enough evidence, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. On the 21st of March 1946, he was sentenced to 12 months in prison for 15 previous charges for breaking and entering. Because you have to remember, while he was doing these attacks, he was on bail for these charges. So he's been arrested while he was on bail. So he's getting 12 months in prison. But then he was also convicted for the last attack on the lady that he sexually assaulted. And he received eight years in prison. However, at his trial... Peter contested that the police had made the charges up, they were just exaggerating them, and that they also made up the evidence just so that they could convict him for something. So he only served six years of this sentence, and he was released in October 1952, and he got a job with the British Railway, where he worked for about two years until they found out that he had been in prison and they had a criminal record. So they fired him. So then he went to work alongside his dad at the Gasworks in East Kilbride, which is in South Lanarkshire. Whilst working at the Gasworks with his dad, he met a young woman called Anna O'Hara in 1954. He was well-liked by her, well-liked by her family. So they got engaged in May 1955. And they set their wedding date for the 30th of July that same year. So they were moving fast. But in the end, Anna called off the engagement. Some say, like... My research, some say it's because of religious differences. So I'm guessing maybe she was a Protestant and he was a Catholic. Because, you know, back in the day, that was proper frowned upon. However, some also say it's because she found out about his time in prison. I don't know why the engagement was called off. However, between 1952 and 1954, Peter has no convictions against him. So it's kind of like he's turned over a new leaf. He's yeah. met he's met his, you know, fiance, he's got a job with his dad. However, I don't believe that. I just think he wasn't caught. There was he just hadn't been caught, so there's no proof that he did anything. But that same day that the engagement had been called off by Anna, Peter decided to abduct a twenty nine year old called Mary McLaughlin. Okay. So he didn't take the breakup very well. He thought, I'm going to go and abduct a woman, you know, because right. that's what you do. Anyway, she was travelling home from a local dance. and She was just at the dance hall. So she was coming back. It was about 11 p.m. So it wasn't one of those, you know, like nowadays, if you're out, it's really late at night. It was just, it was 11 p.m. And she was just a few minutes away from her home when Peter grabbed her and held a knife to her throat. He then made her climb over a fence into a nearby field. He just kept threatening her because obviously he's got a huge knife and he sexually assaulted her. Eventually, he let her go and she went to the police. Okay. So this part is interesting. It reminds me of someone, I think you'll know who. He was charged, but he decided to represent himself. 
Bundy. Yes. Good old Bundy. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like, oh, psychopath behaviour. He mm. declared... I just, even, like, in his defence, like, I would never think I was defending Ted Bundy, but at least Ted Bundy went to study law. Like... That's true. Whereas this guy is just like, cool, I'll do it. However, I must say, the jury and the police and everyone did say he represented himself very well. You know, he could... He was a good speaker. So, kind of, he was kind of like Ted Bundy. Just, you know, lived in Scotland. He declared that she was just a bitter ex... And that, in his defence, they had had an argument Mm -hmm. and he had hit her, which explained the blood on his clothes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it must have been quite a fierce hit. Anyway. Yeah, for sure. He got away with it and walked free. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, he was a great talker, let's just say. Yeah. I think him walking free gave him the confidence boost that he really didn't need. And this is when I believe his killing spree really began. So on the 4th of January in 1956, a doll walker named George was just walking on an East Kilbride golf course on a snowy afternoon. It was about 3pm. This winter seems to be really, really snowy. So the golf course was completely covered. And as he was walking, he found like something. He didn't know what it was. And after a further investigation, he actually had found the frozen body of a woman so when I say frozen it had obviously been lying there for some time and it actually completely frozen due to how cold it was. After further investigation it was identified as Anne Nielsen who was a 17 year old local girl who'd been missing for two days. When they found her her body was a bit cut up and what they think has happened is she'd ran through barbed wire causing her face and arm to have loads of lacerations on them. They believe that she had ran from the main road that was near the golf course and on the run she'd actually lost both her shoes so she'd done a majority of the running in her bare feet she was also raped and then murdered at the scene and she was found in a huge pool of blood well this blood had obviously frozen as well but there was a lot a lot of blood around her body and her possessions were and that's scattered. in white snow isn't it yeah well so can you can just imagine it do you know what i mean but then mm-hmm. it also snowed like on top of her but her possessions were also scattered everywhere so they obviously spoke to her family and found out she'd been missing for the two days. And the last time her parents had seen her is she was going on, she described it as a date. So she was meeting a man that she'd met at a local dance a couple of nights previous. And she had told her sister she was meeting him at the bus station at 6pm to get the bus into Glasgow. Because obviously they're in East Kilbride. She leaves her house about 20 to 6 and gets in the bus station and the man doesn't turn up. So she waits, thinking, if I wait a little bit longer, maybe he'll turn up for the next bus. And he doesn't. So she gets the, she gets the feeling, you know, he's not coming. So because she's in the area, she goes to visit a family friend. And she goes to their house, hangs out there, and just leaves a bit before seven. Actually, her parents went out that night. So, like, she wasn't their top priority. And when they got home and she wasn't in, they were like, it's cool. She's obviously gone and stayed at her friend's. I don't think they knew about her date. It's a sister that kind of knew all about that. So they didn't really think much of it. But when she didn't return the next day, that's when they realised that she was missing. Something that's really eerie about this, which I think says a lot about Manuel, is all of her belongings were found on the golf course next to her body, apart from her purse. Her purse was found in the back garden of the family friend's house that she visited. So they believe that he'd been watching her since then and had actually even attacked her there or gone back and dumped the purse there 
Oh, so he was clearly stalking her. Yeah, That's which I weird. think either option is eerie. Yeah. But, so obviously, the list of suspects, and of course Manuel's very high up on this list of suspects. However, when they interview him, his face is covered in scratches. And they found out that he was working near the golf course at that time. However, his father provided an alibi and said that he was at home all night with him. So there was no possible way it was him. So, of course, he walked. Yeah, exactly. But then it's not long until he's on the police's radar again. So a couple of months later in September, so it was the 15th of September that year, he broke into a house in Burnside near Glasgow. Not a lot was stolen, which is the weird thing when we look into this. Like, there wasn't anything expensive like we spoke about earlier. The house was completely trashed. Like, he'd done some weird stuff. Like, he threw a whole bowl of soup, like, over their living room. And, like, he just trashed a lot of stuff. But one thing that the lady noticed was missing was a pair of her tights. Which was one of the main things that they were kind of like, right, okay. So, he'd stolen, like, tights but not expensive stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if you're going to go to all that trouble, just put some jewellery yeah. in your bag. Like, you might yeah, not want exactly. it, but just take it. Exactly. So a couple <laughs> of months later, there's actually another incident in the house, and this happens to the Watt family. So the Watt family is a very basic family. So you have the mum, Marion, you've got the dad, William, the daughter, Vivian, and the mum's sister, Margaret. So they're all around at the house. The daughter actually has her friend over as well, and they're all just having a night in. But the dad wasn't there. He was away on a trip, about 180 miles away. He was away on this holiday. So he wasn't about, so it was just the girls in the house. Her friend was over, but the friend went home. So when it came to bedtime, it was just the mum, Marion, Viv and her auntie. Now, Manuel let himself into this house later that night, and he he knows how to break into houses. That's something he's very good at. (laughs) He managed to get in there without making any noise whatsoever. And he went straight to the mum's room. So he went to Marion's room and shot her in the head and killed her. He then shot her sister, who was sleeping next to her, twice in the head. Now, they think it happened twice because they think she's been startled with the first one. However, both of these women, well, Marion was wearing trousers, her trousers were completely torn, and her sister, Margaret, her nightdress was up. He then went to Vivian's room and hit her on the head and tied it up and then shot her. And again, her pyjamas were torn. So he went in and killed these three women. And then, again, nothing much was really stolen. He just left, just let himself out. The next morning, the housekeeper turned up and obviously saw the smashed glass. Knocked, there was no answer, and a local postman was coming by, and they went in, and unfortunately, that is what they found, which is horrendous. Obviously, it sounds horrible, it's it's better it wasn't the dad finding his family like this, but it's still horrendous. Obviously, the dad's 180 miles away, and he finds out this news, which must be awful, and yet again, who comes up on the police's list? Manuel. So they go to his house and search for the gun, search warrant, search for the gun, but there's nothing there. And what was he doing that night? He was hanging out with his dad in the house. So oh, he had another dad. alibi. Yep. <laughs> he had another alibi. So they found nothing they couldn't charge. Now, as I said, I can imagine like people deal with things like this in completely different ways. And this guy's on holiday and has found this out. However, a witness said that when he found out the news about his family, William smirked and shed no tears. So the police automatically jump on this and he was officially accused on the 28th of September. So only a few days later. At his hearing, he just didn't say a word. He just kept really quiet and he did get away with this. Well, I say get away with it, he got off with it. And I don't believe he did it because there was two witnesses. So he was seen in his hotel, a waitress saw him at his window at 1am and then he was seen at 8.30am scraping his car window 
So that only leaves him seven and a half hours to drive 180 miles, then back, and then leave his car long enough for it to freeze over. Yeah, that doesn't add up, I don't think. No. Like, do you know, and also, why would you go that far away? Mm-hmm. Like, I know he was on a Edinburgh. fishing trip, but like, yeah. catch fish somewhere else. Well, that's the thing. You'd go closer if you were planning on killing your family and pretend you were on holiday. You mm-hmm. wouldn't be going like that far away. Mm-mm-mm. However, during this happening, Manuel is charged again. So Manuel is charged with a previous housebreak. So he actually goes away for 13 months. And he, during this time, writes to the police saying that he knew who'd done the murders. Now, this is something I hate is when serial killers taunt, like their victims or taunt the police and pretend they know more information than they do. Because let's be honest, this guy knows nothing. But he's saying that he knows who did the Watt family murders. He actually came up with a name, so a name called Charles Tallis. And he says that he is the killer and that this man committed them. But Watt knows. Like, William Watt is like, no. No, it's definitely him. And he just takes in all the information he's saying in the hope to use it against him at one point. So although he thinks, like Manuel thinks, that the police and William are actually listening to him, they're not listening to him at all. Like, they're listening to him, but they're just like, yeah, whatever, you're talking rubbish. But then he gets out of jail after 13 months and carries on, really, is the best way to put it. So we then go flying forward to December. So on December the 28th in 1957, Isabel Cook, a 17-year-old girl, is going to a dance in Uddingston near Glasgow with her boyfriend. Um, She's meeting him there, so she's travelling herself, and she left her family home at 7.30 to get the bus. So on the way to this bus stop, she actually takes a shortcut. A shortcut we've mentioned before. This shortcut is the footpath where previously Peter Mammel attacked the mum and her child. Oh, what, 10 years before? 10 years prior, yeah. So this is the path that she takes to get her bus. However, her boyfriend stood outside and he waits 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. She doesn't turn up. And then when she doesn't show up home either, her parents are thinking she's at this dance. Her boyfriend's thinking she's at home. So nobody's really concerned. However, her dad just gets a feeling. And after a bit of a sleepless night, he's like, nah, something's not right. And he phones the police and reports her missing in the AM. Throughout the next day, her belongings are found kind of scattered about the area. So they know, you know, they just know something. However, her body isn't found. So they don't have anybody for her. She's appearing in the newspaper. They're searching for weeks and weeks and nothing happens. Nothing comes up of it. A few days later, 6th of January, there's another family, the Smart family. So you've got Peter, the dad, Doris, the mum and Michael, the son, are all found murdered in their house. They've been shot dead in the head and they are found when Peter hasn't turned up for work, which is very unlike him after New Year. So someone goes around to check on him. When they do the postmortem, they think that they've been lying there for about six days. So you, they think they got killed on New Year's Day. However, the neighbours... Happy um, New Year. Yeah. Well, the neighbours are like, that's not true. Because we've seen movement in the house. The curtains have been drawn, they've been opened, there's been lights on, there's been someone, there's been people living in that house. However, one of the neighbours is like, actually, now you mention it, the curtain was kind of hung uneven, which isn't like Doris. She was apparently very house proud. So they mm-hmm. thought someone else had opened the curtains. 
Well, it's like if you police... open the curtains wrong for your mum, she gets, you know, my mum oh, does that. She's like, open... oh, it's wrong. And I'm like, it looks absolutely fine. My mum still tells me how to open the blinds. I'm mm-hmm. 25 years old this year. And she's like, yep. do you not know how to open blinds? And I'm like, okay. Um, but this is when the police realised that whoever killed them lived in the house. Like, oh. as their bodies were lying there, they just lived in their house. At this time, Manuel's kicking about again. And he's overspending, living his best life as people say and he's just (laughs) spending loads of money he's offering to buy people drinks he's buying himself things which isn't like him he's not known for having a lot of money but especially spending money on other people but peter withdrew 35 pound so not peter manwell sorry just to confirm that that's mr smart yes peter smart withdrew 35 pound in new banknotes and a barman reported that manuel was using these banknotes and they got confirmed by the serial number to be the banknotes that Peter had taken out. That's so, amazing. I didn't really yeah, track that, especially, especially in back 50s. in the day. But yeah. I suppose that's probably the... There wasn't that much money printed nowadays. Yeah, and they were probably you know the size I mean? of your head. Yeah, exactly. So they get a warrant, search the house again, and actually when they arrest, when they do this house search, sorry, they arrest his dad. So they arrest Sam Manuel and bring him in. And then Peter calls the police and says, look... I'll come in. He comes forward, he's interviewed and he asks to speak to his parents first as he'd like to confess to them first. So he confesses all eight murders to his parents. He admits That's about killing the smart family. Yeah. He admits about killing the smart family. He says that he then stayed in that house, looked after their cat, drove around in Peter's oh. car, lived as if he was living their life for days. He offered to take them to Isabel's body, the body that I spoke about that wasn't found. So she was officially found on the 16th of January 1958. 19 days after a murder and she was hidden in a place called burnt room farm under about three meters worth of dirt she was just lay there so at least they found her body so obviously the police pressed the charges on him and the trial begins on 12th of may 1958 if he is found guilty of this in scotland back then they actually still had the death penalty which i find it surreal that we had the death penalty like i feel like it's it's such a american thing but we had the death penalty and with him using guns as well, you're like, no one uses yeah, guns. Yeah, like, like, that's why when I keep being, I keep thinking this is an American case, because I'm like, if, if, you know, we don't hear people getting shot here very often. But Like, yeah. it happens, but it's mm-hmm. not really like you're just mm-hmm. going out of someone's house and shooting them. Yeah. So he turns up to court, and as we said before, very Bundy. Turns up in a beautiful navy blazer, and the court say that he looked really smart. And 13 days in, he sacks his whole legal team. And just decides to support himself. He goes back on his confessions, claiming that he wasn't in places he said he was. He brings up Charles Tallis again and says that he admitted to the uh, the Watt murder, and that um, he'd been round at his house and accidentally Tallis had left stuff like the gun at his house. That's why they found it there. Just basically starting to go back on everything he had said to the police. But the judge did say to the jury that he actually couldn't be found guilty of the Anne Nealands murder due to the lack of evidence. Even if judge... he mm-hmm. says he did it. So before the jury go and deliberate, yeah, well, because he took back everything he said, remember. Mm, so even before true. the jury have went and had a conversation, the judge has said to them, like, he can't be found guilty of that, kind of assuming they're going to find him guilty of the rest. On the 29th of May, 1958, at 4.50pm, the jury decided that he was not guilty of the murder of Anne. However, he was guilty for the Watt family murder, Isabel Cook and the Smart family. And he is sentenced to death by hanging. When this comes out, he just gives no reaction. 
whatsoever to the verdict. He's just kind of like, yeah, fine. Like, what can you say? Do you know what I mean? However, he's sentenced and he goes to wait in Berlini. He tried to commit suicide while in Berlini. But, oh. um, yeah, I actually didn't know this, but yeah, he drank no. cleaning product. So one of the cleaners was walking past with a trolley and he grabbed cleaning product and downed it, went to hospital, was absolutely fine. Like, ugh, do you know what I mean? Can you imagine, like, what a waste of everybody's time? Four days later, And a waste appeals. of cleaning liquid. Yeah, exactly. Four days later, he appeals, but it's denied. Good. And this is what I find is very, very crazy. So obviously he's, found, he's sentenced in May, but on the 11th of July, 1958, he's executed. Well, there's no hanging about. Excuse the pun. It's not the place. I didn't mean it. It just came yeah, that out. Was, that was terrible. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny to think how you hear about people being on death row for years. But mm-hmm. he's not even on death row for two months. Yeah. And he's executed at 8am. And his final words were, if you turn the radio up, I'll go quietly. Oh, that just screams yeah, psychopath. Like, yeah, energy, like, like... you're just weird. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That is the story of Peter Manuel. I have one thing I want to discuss. I don't know if you have anything you want to discuss, but I have one thing. I want to discuss <laughs> another potential victim. Oh, okay. I'm ready for it. So do you know about the forgotten victim? I've forgotten. Samantha. I know, I'm sorry. You're really on <laughs> bad form tonight. <laughs> I know. So the forgotten victim, Sidney John Dunn. So to up until his death, Manuel completely denied this said he had absolutely nothing to do with it that it was nothing to do with him he's never been charged he couldn't be charged as there is no evidence against him however I'm going to give you the facts of this and see what your thoughts are because I think it's him I really do so Sidney John Dunn was a taxi driver from Newcastle he was basically just waiting outside Newcastle station waiting for a fare on Sunday the 8th of December 1957 and he picks up two men. Now later that night a police officer finds his taxi at the side of the road. There is blood on the wheel and all the lights have been smashed in so they think it's been a road traffic accident. Fine. And the police officer cycles to the nearest next place to see if they can get help but there's nothing. And his body is found in the woods next to it and he's been shot in the head. He's got a gash on his neck and he's been dragged through by his coat. Oh, that's now, a rough one. The weapon matched other victims, like the same weapon was used on other victims. And where was Manuel at the time? In Newcastle for a job interview. Was he? However, there was oh. no robbery. Oh, right, okay. But he's been known to like not rob houses before, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And plus, maybe he took something out the taxi, but you don't always know what's in a taxi. I know they have a mm-hmm. bag of cash, like change. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. there could have been anything that you might have just taken. Mm -hmm. Mm. Now, have you heard about the poem? No. He wrote a poem when in jail. Peter Manuel. Okay. He wrote a poem while in jail. I'm ready. Recite it for me. Would you like me to read the whole poem? Because I was going to offer to read it, but yeah. You took higher English, didn't you? You'll be great at it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and ignore the fact I studied drama, but everyone. Um, Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he wrote a poem in jail and it was found years after his death. It was kept in one of like the, like one of the, what are they called? Like not the guards, but like above that in the prisons, like Mm-mm. in one of their drawers, it was found. Oh, right. Okay. And I'm going to read the whole poem and see your thoughts on it because 
they say that he's the forgotten victim they didn't have enough to press charges on him but I think this is in confession but here we go I'll read the poem to you see what you think so okay I'm Peter Anthony Manuel in Berlini jail I lie awaiting on a high court jury to sentence me to die I know the jury's verdict will sentence me to death for I Peter Anthony Manuel the foulest beast on earth I know you read your papers and shall read about my crime I have not caused the death of one but have caused the death of nine I'm looking for not sympathy, for don't you realise, I'm Peter Anthony Manuel, a reptile in disguise. I murdered Isabella Cook and young Anne Nealans too, shot the Watts and shot the Smarts, and Sydney Dunn I slew. I did these deeds without a doubt, my guilt was found by law. I'm Peter Anthony Manuel, the rat of Birkinsaw. I wonder who the hangman is, since Pierpoint's gone away, but I know that I shall meet him on the ill-fated day that day i'll get breakfast i know i'll get no lunch for the law must have its pound of flesh and they can hang me only once and when i'm dead they'll bury me in a pit of burning lime by my name will live forevermore in the storybook of crime and when they write my epitaph these words they shall be seen here lies peter anthony manuel scotland's frankenstein that was a cracking poem i didn't like the word frankenstein at the end but Samantha, can you please not comment a serial <laughs> crawl a cracking poem from a serial killer? <laughs> um, but yeah, there he confesses. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so, plus, how would he know about Sydney? You know what yeah. I mean? Well, he was asked loads of times. All right, yeah. Did he kill Sydney? Which he kept saying no, he kept saying no. But that's the thing, he's wrote in this that he killed nine. And, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know if he's put it in as a wind up. I don't know if eventually he's just wrote it. Or it rhymed. It made it rhyme very well. <laughs> but then, yeah, and then, yeah. I, I think he did it. Like, I get, yeah, it, put it in the poem. It makes it rhyme. Put it in the poem. Mm. It'll wind them up. But at the same time, it's like he could have worded the poem and said, oh, I killed eight and this and that. So mm. I think But then the word slew as well is used when describing Sydney. And he's the only one that had a slit throat. And is that what slew means? Well, no, it kind of means to, like, turn quite uncontrollably. So you never know. But, yeah, I'd like to, I don't know. I think oh, I'd, I So kind of like he was in the taxi coming back from the job interview and he thought, right, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Like, he turned. Yeah, I'd like to think, like, it sounds horrible. It'd be, see if it was him. I'd, I think it's good for the family to have closure. But, like, it, we spoke about this. How many podcasts have we spoke about this on? I don't get why they don't just admit it. You're already in jail. You're already getting hung. Like, especially like, him he's on death row like yeah just, but it's like that last bit of power isn't it and yeah. like he said in the poem my name's gonna we're speaking about him god mm-hmm. 70 years later yeah. you know so, like, so he, he had wanted. a yeah he had a point and like i said when he was younger he blamed other people but you know when he started killing he wanted to keep that fame mm-hmm. and keep it for himself yeah yeah again he's one of those people that's like that being a serial killer is a personality trait mm-hmm. and yeah that's what I always just find really funny but I'm like if he loved being a serial killer so much why didn't he just say yeah yeah you know I don't I never understand that where I'm like why didn't he just admit it mm-hmm. but, and especially because he's admitted some things even though he took it back he yeah, admits so I don't yeah, know yeah then he wrote a poem literally admitting to them all again so I'm like, I feel like if he was just dying, why wouldn't, or like he knew he was going to die, why wouldn't he just say like, actually guys, yeah, you're right. 
but I suppose it's that last thing that everybody wanted from him and it's the one thing he had complete control over was not telling them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was like when he was showing the police to Isabel's body, he was just walking around and around and they were getting completely fed up with him and they were like, you don't even know where she's buried. And then he goes, actually, I'm standing on top of her right now, so calmly. Yeah. You're just like, hmm. He likes yeah, being in control. That's the thing, though, it's that having that last minute of control. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to say about this murder, or mm-hmm. these murders, is that it's such a huge thing, I would say, for Scotland. Like, I know if you Google them or whatever, it's like, oh, Scotland's worst serial killer or the monster of Scotland and everything like that. And I get there has been worse crimes, mm-hmm. you could say. But I think what makes Peter so awful is because one he has a gun and two he goes into people's houses and kills you while you're sleeping so that's the one place that you feel safe you know your doors are locked yeah that's your windows locked yeah that's like nightmare material isn't it Mm -hmm. like it's crazy so he really is you know a monster yeah no definitely and that's the thing, to attack someone at their most vulnerable when they can't protect themselves, like, to just wait, like, and how he done it so cleverly, he'd just sneak in so quietly and just appear. And then, bang. Well, on that note, sleep well tonight, Sam. Thanks very much. <laughs>